Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight and guard our life, liberty, and property to focus on the issues that matter in the way they matter, at the time they matter, always skating to where the puck is headed, not to where it has already gone. Daniel Horowitz back here today for Wednesday, a brand new month. We are already on the second month of the new year, which is not so new. Are we able to learn new tricks, new ideas, new initiatives? There's a very uncomfortable reality I think we all need to confront. We all need to look in the mirror and realize, recognize that we have found the enemy and it is us. The problem is low info conservative voters. Let's face it. Okay, let, 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 let's, let's be honest here. If you look at the political map of this country... There is ample autonomous authority in counties and state governments. Over the years, if you look at the number of counties and the number of states that reliably vote for the Republican for president, that reliably vote, in, let's say you want to filter it only down to the states that and counties that reliably vote for the Republican by a 20-point margin. It's an awful lot of space in this country. Tremendous amount of space. Yet, for decades, we've allowed the worst aspects of culture, the tranny stuff, the global warming stuff, destroying our property, our liberties, our economy, our products and services, and then obviously culminating with COVID fascism, We've allowed that to permeate really all the corners of our country. There are very few places in this country to this day where we've even banned the barbaric practice of forcibly masking people. I mean, even after everything we know. And the biggest thing that I'm noticing going around watching Congress, the hearings, the legislation, watching the state legislatures, interacting with other so-called conservative leaders, even the better ones. And I, I feel like everyone know, everyone in the abstract says we're going to hell in a handbasket. But when it gets down to the specificity of the matter, there's no sense of urgency. And connected to that point is that the expectations are so doggone low. It's like, well, we can only do this. Like, what do you mean? We're not talking about like abolishing all of welfare or something, which would be nice, but we're not talking about major things. We're talking about things. Everything that I put forward is winnable politically, at least in the areas we're trying to do it. And you look at what we're facing. It's as existential as it gets. 
war, hunger, disease. Okay, germ warfare between the pathogens, the vaccines they're foisting upon us. What we've learned over the last few years that the hospitals, the medical care, the therapeutics, not just with regard to COVID, but in general are genocidal. And that they've been stifling real cures while pushing barbaric treatments. I mean, cancer is a whole other story. What's causing this stuff, what we should and shouldn't be doing. And then you have the food issues, the supply chains. Of course, just like with the baby formula and with the oil refineries, just as eggs is elevated to the biggest inflationary item, we have a fire in the third largest um, uh, egg manufacturing plant. I'm sure, I'm sure that is also uh, a conspiracy, just like everything with the shots. These guys are playing for keeps. And when you look at what they've done, what they've done on energy, oil refineries, pipelines, nuclear power, the global warming regulations, all this stuff, you look at it. And you look at how Republicans voted for this stuff, allowed this stuff to go on for years. The the big question headed forward is, slowly people are waking up. Slowly, we're permeating the lower offices, GOP party positions, school boards, some low, you know, state houses a little bit. But quickly and robustly is the other side's effort and successfully doing so to move that Overton window in terms of what they're doing and the damage that it causes to us. War, hunger, disease, remember that. What they're doing with with Ukraine. And the question is, do we even have time? But I get the sense that the biggest problem we have is the reason why I'm not seeing this sense of urgency. The reason why I'm not seeing higher expectations is because I don't think people have the knowledge and the truth. I think our own people don't really get it. That, that's part of the problem. We have low information conservative voters. And they're just kind of told to focus on oh, Trump, 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 Trump this, Republican that, Biden scandal this. All the empty calories that distract them. The next election, the next election. But there's so much you can do. And, and, and again, I have this frantic sense of urgency because, you know, in half these state legislatures, you can't even introduce legislation anymore. That's how quick it is. They meet for a few months. You can introduce legislation for a few weeks and boom, then you're at a session. And then there's no hope to even build momentum to change anything. Then the executive branch could exercise their authority to legislate, even though they don't have it, for the next, you know, eight months with impunity. The executives in the state or county level could say, you can't go anywhere without breathing into a dirty mask. It's funny, I I was speaking to a legislator in Oklahoma, and I was pitching him my ideas like I do all day, and uh, he was like, yeah, Daniel, I only get eight bills I could introduce. So, you know, I already have to pitch things to other people. 
I mean, what type of stupid idea is that? Well, it'd be like, Daniel, well, that's great. It limits government. Yeah, in the 1800s when the executive branch was limited. Now that we don't have a constitutional republic and basically the federal government funnels funding to the various bureaucratic departments in all these states and makes them dependent on their terrible policies. So your only avenue of fighting back is through the legislature. And all those limitations limit us, not them. It actually saves them. I mean, so there's nothing that's going right. And I think people know in a general sense there's nothing that's going right. We have an open border. We have rampant crime. Inflation's out of control. We have scarcity of the uh, most important goods and services. And during that inflationary period, I don't know if you saw um, the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, put out their their last uh, GDP report. Disposable income fell over $1 trillion last year in 2022. That's the second largest drop behind only uh, 1932, which was the worst year of the Depression. So all this stuff is going on, and none of it is a coincidence. You can't have this all happen at once. But we don't have leadership, and that's what we're trying to create. But a leadership, at least a professional movement, that empowers people with knowledge and what to do, and that's what we're trying to recreate here. As Abigail Adams said, she wrote this, I think, in a letter to her son, uh, Quincy, learning is not attained by chance. It must be sought for with ardor and attended to with diligence. It's not attained by chance. It's not going to happen on its own. So I think that's the problem. We just think it's just going to happen. There's going to be people are just going to reach a tipping point. They can't take it anymore. But no, I mean, the other side is very artful about what to do what at what point and what information to release and when to stop. They knew when to stop the lockdown. They knew when to stop mainly, most mostly the mask. And they knew how far to go with the vaccines. And then they ease off, reload the gun, move on to the next thing. But without a movement to stay focused and to empower our people, they don't know. And this is how you have these states like Wyoming where we have gone through the last three years of this. Girls being arrested for not wearing a mask in school, the shutdowns, the closure of the churches and the genocide of the shots and the blocking of treatment, the forcing of treatment. And there's not a single legal reform to any of those items. In Wyoming, and and it's more or less true in most of the red states to varying degrees. Some they did a little bit in you know some of the consensus lockdown stuff. Some they didn't. Why is there no clamor, or would there be a clamor if we had leadership telling people what to care about? I <coughs> I always tell people you give me control of Fox News and similar outlets for one week, and I'll get people with their hair on fire, red pilled over whatever I want them to focus on. Okay, that is ultimately where it's at. Knowledge is power, and we need to instill that. And that's what I want to do. So I want to get to that and and some of the issues of the day. First, our sponsor today. One of the things you can do, folks, th- this is serious. They they when they say they want you to eat bugs, they want you to eat bugs. They don't want you to have food, fuel, cars, or medicine. And I think we learned that with COVID. Suddenly, 
along with the egg shortage, there is an antibiotic shortage. <laughs> it's funny. There, there's something like the government bought like 330,000 vials of Novavax, and they only used like less than 10% of them. So <laughs> there's never a scarcity of that stuff. But amoxicillin, doxycycline, things like that, no, you can't You can't get. That's why I recommend you go over to jacemedical.com, our new partner, use offer code REVIEW10 at checkout to, to get $10 off your Jace case. What is it, what's a Jace case? It's a pack of five different courses of common antibiotics that you, you might need to treat uh, UTI, respiratory infections, sinusitis, skin infections, and you might not be able to get it on hand at this pace, so... Like we did with Seven Cells, go and sign up um, for for uh, your prescription because you do need a prescription with the you know fill out a questionnaire. It only takes a couple minutes. Then uh, they'll dispense it, give you your prescription, and mail it to you. Again, review ten at the checkout for ten dollars off at JaceMedical.com. So, folks, this is what I'm trying to do with these committees. With our Liberty Strike Force teams, our Constitution Action. So you go to conaction.network if you want to sign up. Right now, we have team leaders in Alaska, North Dakota, South Carolina, Iowa, Georgia, Florida, West Virginia, and Alabama. If you're from any of those states and you're serious about wanting to um, help with IT to set up a website, if you want to help with attending, depending on how close you live to the capital of each state, you know, to attend hearings and to meet with legislators, to call them, to build email lists, to help write legislative updates, to help uh, volunteer to be on top of, you know, let's say we have 10 issues we want. We have, you know, big tech censorship, training stuff, uh, medical freedom stuff, uh, illegal immigration bills, which ones you're going to be on top of, pushing, um, you know, go, going out and doing media, all different jobs. Division of labor is important. You only need about 10, 20 people doing this to make a huge, huge difference. We already have people willing to coordinate this. And if you're from other states like Idaho, Wyoming, you know, Montana, we still need leaders in those states, South Dakota, um, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, let me know. Um, we need a team leader. It, it does require a lot, but it's amazing. Kudos to... Um, we have, you know, about eight or so team leaders that have stepped up. Amazing. All volunteer work. Uh, but this is how we're going to make a difference. And this is how you could be paired together with like-minded people. Like-minded people to actually get on the playing field. And, you know, let, let me give you an example of, of, of this going on. There's a hearing right as we're talking now. Um, right as we're talking in Indiana. The Indiana Department of Health. Not only are they not reforming a single thing, Indiana, Republicans have three to one and four to one majorities in each house, respectively. And yet, not a single aspect of what was done in that state is reformed. Nothing. Emergency powers, lockdowns, closures, masks, vaccines, you know, treatment, nothing, 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 nothing. But they're actually, we have to actually play defense. They want to strengthen the power of the Department of Health. The lesson from that disgusting, filthy Governor Holcomb, another Mike Pence acolyte, his lesson is the Department of Health doesn't have enough power. So Senate Bill 4 wants to consolidate kind of the, the, the county 
health departments into really giving veto power to the state health department. And uh, there's a hearing today in in the committee. So you know that's that's something to watch out for. It, we we it would be you know we we're, we're might we might be on the cusp of having an Indiana team. But again, sign up at conaction.network. This is what we need. And I would just say just, you know, on a federal level, on a federal level, I'm watching yesterday. So finally this week, they're dealing with COVID. So you have four pieces of legislation. There, there's um, one terminating the emergency. So there's the general emergency. There's the public health emergency. That's two bills. There is the bill to end the CMS vaccine mandate. I'm assuming that includes the mask mandate. Um, and then the fourth bill is forcing government workers to finally go back to work, you know, not do the telecommute stuff. Okay. So, you know, that's fine. They finally got to it. You also have a hearing today at the Oversight Committee. That's James Comer's committee on – what's the title of this hearing? Um. Oversight hearing on fraud of the money spent. Federal pandemic spending, a prescription for waste, fraud, and abuse. And I'm thinking, like, okay, so the problem is the way they spent the money, the waste, fraud, and abuse. The fraud and abuse was the underlying premise of the money. See, their point is, okay, we spent $2 trillion. You know, we wasted a couple hundred billion. No, the problem was the original two trillion and the subsequent few trillion they added on. The fraud and abuse is the Pfizerocracy. You see what I'm saying? It's like their point is like, yeah, the wrong responses, the abuse of the money. After action report, there's no sense of urgency that this is a live fire genocide exercise. That it's got to be stopped. To recognize what has happened and then to recognize that they have the mRNA flu and RSV shots looming over us. And also that ensconced in all those annual shots that at every pharmacy, every person who walks into that pharmacy to fill a antibiotic prescription or anything or a statin or a steroid, have you gotten your flu shot? Oh, and are you up to date with your coronavirus shot, your RSV shot? And then adding on that, the annual... The, it's like, yeah, the shots have failed. So now we're going to just move them annually. That's what they're saying. And everyone's fine with that. There's no sense of urgency. And again, because there's no knowledge. We have low information conservative voters being influenced and misdirected and misled, led astray by an even lower information professional conservative chattering class. Grifting class. There are so many action items. I'm like frantically going down my Rolodex of names every day. Okay, in this state, did we introduce this? Did we do that? And the clock just ticks and ticks. It's shocking. It's shocking how underwhelming the response has been. I thought after everything we've gone through, again, war, hunger, disease, supply chain shortages, scarcity, collapse, economic collapse, social collapse, porter collapse, There'd be some impetus to do something different. And you go to these state legislators, you go to the conservative chattering class, it's really business as usual. I guess it hasn't gotten bad enough. 
So I want to get to some of these action items. You know, a really good one. A really, really good one. If you guys could get this introduced, and I want you guys to take notes, especially if you're in a so-called red state, we need a bill doing this. What's this? I don't know if you guys remember during the Obama years, 2015, I think it was July 2015, HUD, right, Housing and Urban Development, introduced a de facto federal racial housing zoning gerrymandering tool. It's called the AFFH, Affirmative Further Fair Housing. So what what it does is they, they have all these like fancy maps, picture like the maps they use to do redistricting and reapportionment. And they look at a given area and they'll target particularly suburbs and particularly red-leaning suburbs. And they'll say, not enough blacks, not enough this, not enough that, not enough low-income housing. And they'll come in and mandate on you in order to stay compliant with anti-discrimination, you must have X number of, pay for X number of like Section 8 vouchers and multi-unit homes in your area. So they could basically, you, you thought you could kind of run away from the morass of the cities? No, 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 no. We're going to bring it to you. So, you know, it's something we fought then. Then Trump took over. And by the way, it took us a long time, you know, uh, bizarrely, to get them to rescind it. Uh, I, I fought that battle at the time. I don't think it was until like 2018, where, where like the third year we got Ben Carson, who was the HUD uh, secretary, to rescind it. And then last week, suddenly... HUD under Biden drops a 284-page proposed rule that basically resurrects it. And they say we're going to create equity. And again, it means that they could target any county that they dislike and demand a change to the demographic composition by simply waving their magic wand. And counties would all have to submit to annual plans on how to better meet their arbitrary goals. And then all the while, it empowers all – it's a classic weaponization of government, how it works. Empowers their army of left-wing NGOs and legal defense groups to sue any county that they believe is not sufficiently complying. So immediately after they put this out, there was a joint like press release from – and double ACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, ACLU, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights un- Under Law, and Unidos US, which is like that last one is literally funded, literally funded by HUD, um, to basically you know just just turn every neighborhood into MS13. And they said it's an important step toward creating more equitable and affordable housing opportunities and stronger, more viable neighborhoods. Folks, I will tell you, there is no issue that is more local in nature that affects people's lives and that riles people up. I remember this since the 90s than the Section 8 issue. But the fact that you'll have the feds do this, this is the perfect issue to win back the suburbs that, that conservatives are bleeding, or Republicans are, I would argue. It's the perfect issue 
to awaken people to the Fourth Reich, but it's also the perfect issue to break legislatures and governors into our ultimate goal of national divorce and the baby steps of interposition to push that. So right now, we need immediately, immediately a bill in each legislature demanding that they rule any state or county or city or township official who complies and supports the AFFH rule in any way, and that includes every state-funded NGO, it is a criminal act. I'm telling you that is such a winning issue. I want to see that in every state. In every, every state. And I just want to give you an example of this. In my county, Baltimore County, which, I mean, it's, it's classic. So basically, at Baltimore City, which is something that rhymes with city, um, it's the armpit of America. So then you have Baltimore County. And over the years, this is exactly what they've done. I mean, you know, you don't need the feds. Locally, they've been, you know, putting up Section 8 and everything to uh, turn the county into the city. And in the last couple of years, they had record homicides in the county as well. It spills over. So in 2016, based on that original AFFH rule under Obama, uh, HUD forced the county to settle under threat of lawsuit for $30 million program, creating 1,000 new low-income units and it had very specific criteria. The county was required to provide 2,000 housing vouchers to help families access, quote, higher opportunity neighborhoods. So this is, this is, a, this is a done deal. It's a proposed rule, and it needs to be dealt with. And then the second action item at a federal level. So, you know, obviously the big fight coming up is going to be the debt ceiling. And I keep emphasizing it's not about a specific dollar figure or like FY22 levels of spending that we should ask for, that we should demand. It's the quality of the spending. So, like, for example, there's this line from all these phony Republicans. Well, I don't want to cut mandatory spending because it's too risky politically, but that's where all the debt is. Discretionary is not enough, so it's not worth it. So basically, let's not do anything. But no, it's the discretionary spending that is creating the Fourth Reich. It's unbelievable, but we spend $60 billion on HUD. Now, something like housing, just like education, there is no rationale, whatever your political belief is, that that should be done at a federal level. Whatever you want to see in terms of housing interference and education interference, it should be, you know, very, those two are very local, and the state should be the backstop, you know, as, as the last resort, and the feds should have zero involvement. I mean, there's just no reason that should ever happen. But HUD is a $60 billion uh, department. Half of that money is basically Section 8. And that's what destroys. Section 8 is one of the most powerful social, political, and economic tools of the left. Are you going to balance the budget off of cutting $20, $30 billion? No. But that's a force multiplier. And that's the type of thing we need to see cut um, from the federal budget.
if Republicans have the guts to do it and punch through, you know, the racially charged language. So that's the first sort of action item, big, big civilization issue, housing, your, your society, your neighborhood, your safety, all depends on it. The next big thing is, obviously, your freedom of movement. And the embodiment of that in America is your car, your automobile. But first, just uh, this week, we actually have an in-house sponsor from our very own Alex Stein. Believe it or not, he has a new show on Blaze TV, and now's a good time to subscribe to Blaze TV. If you go to blazetv.com slash primetime, you get $20 off if you use your pr- promo code PIMP on on a blimp. PIMP on a blimp. Don't ask me why Alex has these names, but um, he calls himself Primetime99. That's his Twitter handle. And we actually had Alex on before. So after you listen to this show, and I boil your blood, unless it's clotting, and you're so ticked off, relax with Alex and he'll make you laugh. And I think there's a very important function for that. Um, And by the way, Alex, you know, sometimes you have these comedians that are kind of grifters, and I won't name names, but they're of no substance. Alex, actually, if you meet him privately, is a very serious person. He's a a big, big believer. Uh, I know his mother was killed by remdesivir. He's very passionate about that. He really wants to make a difference. And his whole idea of culture jamming, he's the guy that originally started this trend of going to city council meetings and you know making fun out of them and everything. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a, one of our new shows here at The Blaze. So again, blazetv.com slash prime time. And the promo code is pimp on a blimp. Okay, I'll have to ask him what that means. Um, anyway, they might want us riding blimps one day, but for now, we ride around with cars, or do we? So the biggest way to destroy freedom is to ensure that people don't have cars, which is, so, like, until now, it's like, oh, that's stupid, it's never gonna happen. Dude, it is happening. The feds and half the states mandated, essentially, you can't have normal cars. Now, you cannot imagine how destructive this is. Republicans, and to this day, Kevin Stitt, the governor of Oklahoma, and many other governors, they're full on on par with the WEF and the left promotion of taxpayer subsidies and market distortions and tendentious treatment of the entire electric car scam. Electric cars are to energy and automobiles what the COVID shots are to medical care. It's the ultimate thing where you restrict what should, you create the problem, you restrict the problem, you restrict the thing, then you force people to use the thing, but the more the thing doesn't work, the more you force it, and even after all the tailwinds it gets, still it can't produce. It can't be effective. So some of you might have seen this, There is a new paper out from Anderson Economic Group. It's a Michigan-based consulting firm. They actually looked at, okay, so after spending all that money up front to purchase an electric vehicle, what sort of benefit are you getting? Okay, so supposedly you would make back the money in not having to fuel, except there's one problem. You have to recharge this freaking thing every second. 
Oh, and there's another problem. As much as the controlled demolition ensured that fuel has skyrocketed from crushing our refineries, from the lawsuits, from blocking the pipelines and the storage and the other infrastructure, and the ethanol biofuels blending mandate, and then all the things they did in the supply chain with COVID and Ukraine to just in general spike things and and the uh, embargoes in Russia... Despite it all, they made electricity even more expensive. Electricity now is a, the electric grid is a bigger crisis than the gasoline crisis. <laughs> and, and, and gasoline's pretty bad. I mean, it's crazy expensive for the dead of winter, especially diesel. But here's the deal. You cannot quantify the year's worth of mandates that you can't produce normal cars, basically shoving the market into electric vehicles, the endless subsidies, government builds the charging stations, builds the infrastructure, funds everything. And yet still, a typical mid-priced, normal, conventional car, drivers paid about $11.29 to fuel their vehicles for 100 miles of driving. That was still 31 cents cheaper than the amount paid by mid-priced electric vehicle drivers charging mostly at home and over $3 less than the cost borne by comparable EV drivers charging commercially. But folks, it's worse than just the money. So, so you pay more to pay more. You pay more up front and the charging is more. And, and again, this is just the beginning. We're just at the tip of this electricity crisis. But it's also the free, freedom of movement. You have to spend an average of $18 per charge and 15 minutes per 100 miles traveled. So try going on a road trip when you have like me, the two-year-old, and you like get her to finally get her to sleep after you know 45 minutes in the car, and then whoops, now you got to stop and stagnate the car for at least 15 minutes every 100 miles. We did Florida um, in the summer. What was that, like 1,000 miles? That's a nightmare, but that's the point. It was never about electric cars. Just like it's not about Pfizer's greed as an end to itself. They want to have greed on the way. That's an ancillary benefit. And certainly there's a lot of people scamming and grifting and making a lot of money off of this. But the goal is not to replace normal cars with electric cars. The goal is to use that as a pretext to ensure that we box out normal cars and then you don't have cars. A, you can't afford it. B, they're not practical. And see, they'll make them scarce because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Electricity is a bigger deal. And you remember during the California drought, not drought, I mean um, that like late, it was like early fall heat wave. If you remember, during that period, the grid operator warned people not to charge their cars. It's hilarious. So, hey, you know, this is your way to get freedom from the oil crisis. Oh, well, actually, no, we have an electric crisis that's even worse because of the very same green policies that both parties for decades bought into. And again, now they're heroes. Now most Republicans are talk good on energy. But still... The governors are worse than even the congressmen. The governors are still pimping all this stuff. The wind, the solar, the electric vehicles. You go to Texas and Oklahoma, I mean, that's all they're pushing. The Dakotas, the carbon capture garbage. 
But think about that. And by the way, California is having trouble handling the EVs just based on this degree of, you know, electric cars. There, and this amount of wind and solar. Right, We still have fossil fuels, or as we should call them, natural fuels. But imagine if they had their goal, 100% solar and wind for the electric grid, and 100% electric vehicles for automobiles. <laughs> How exactly are you going to have the... Inf- Just think of the amount of electricity you're going to need. Think of the batteries you're going to need. And by the way, all that's made overseas... Primarily China. So China's getting the, there's a $7,500 um, electric vehicle tax credit in this in the signature legislation that was passed last year. By the way, only because Mitch McConnell and 20 Republicans gave up their hold on this other must-pass $300 chips and science bill, which is another terrible tra- travesty. Um, everything they do creates the Fourth Reich, limits our freedom, creates terrible products, promotes transhumanism, and empowers China. Both bills did that. But basically, they had a hold on that, and they said that, you know, um, until Schumer agrees, he's not going to pass that, you know, so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And then they decide to take off the hold, and then that day, Schumer announces, we're invoking, we're using reconciliation to pass that bill. So, So there you go. So that's number one action item, Part of the debt ceiling needs to be that bill needs to to be replaced. You can not imagine $50 billion in that bill for the electric vehicle industry. That is going to destroy us. Destroy us. That is going to be used to box out all as a pretext. See, remember, they always need something to move you away from freedom. That's what electric vehicles are. And the same thing, electric, uh, wind, and solar. And by the way, you look, you look at um, the what do you call it? The EIA, uh, uh, Energy Information Administration. Uh, so you know, we we had our our office in Dallas was shut down because of the ice storm. Northern Texas had got a bad ice storm, and then you know, deep cold, especially for that region. And you look at the percentage of the grid, what it relies on, and it's like it's all natural gas. Solar is zero and wind collapsed. It always collapses on those critical days. After tens of billions of dollars from that scumbag, you know, T. Boone Pickens pushing in Texas, that's what you have. That's your red state there. So that is the goal. The goal is to get you not to use normal vehicles. And by the way, then there's the safety issues. We obviously saw it during the flood after Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida where you had these ubiquitous fires from electric vehicles. Oh, that's nice to know. DeWalt came out with their new electric mowers and they are having the same problem catching fire. See, this is the type of thing that a free market vets out. But when you absolve something of liability, like in the case of Pfizer or you literally keep something afloat 100% based on government mandates, marketing, funding, subsidies, and market distortions, you know, they just produce garbage without looking into this. But again, the reality is electricity is going to be more expensive than um, 
than fuel. And I, I live, I don't even live in a bad part of the country, you know, with electricity. Some are a lot worse, but over the winter, the, the rates almost doubled. And then again, um, China controls 70% of the global electric vehicle battery production. So, of course, it's all about enriching them. And then the nickel, the cobalt, and lithium are almost all produced abroad. And there's severe shortages thanks to the Fourth Reich globally and all the games they're doing there. So, just so you know, the goal is not electric vehicles. Now, there are going to be people pimping them and making money on the way. The goal is zero vehicles, and they are very close to that. Because even where they haven't phased them out, they're essentially making normal cars half electric. You have to get 45 miles per gallon. And they're now making, now, now normal cars are as expensive as electric vehicles used to be. It's disgusting. Every aspect of life. Where is the Republican effort? These are the type of issues that they need to lie down on the track. The weaponization against the parts of our lives that matter. Not just the spending programs in the abstract or spending figures. And then again, states need... Imagine if every red state, I mean, they're not red, but if they were, would get together, every governor would say, we are inviting manufacturers to produce in our states cars that actually work and appliances and products minus the global warming agenda. We are not doing this. You cannot engage in a controlled demolition of society that's what needs to happen but of course we only have one normal governor so so there you go so folks this is what i mean when i say our expectations are too doggone low all these things oh daniel we can't do that we can't possibly get all the governors together well yeah because we don't fight for it we don't fight for it and and again the, the the lesson is you get what you fight for. You know, when I try to fight for, you know, what would be regarded relative to the political Overton window as more extreme legislation or manifestation of something, it's not nearly as extreme as what Republicans are doing on abortion relative to where the issue is. In other words, they're full they're pushing full full ban and 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 now in a lot of states like tennessee elsewhere they're going after even you know oral abortifacients they're they're trying to like plow the salt over that well why shouldn't we do that on issues that are much less popular um than even abortion which always had a kind of like you know at least a 50 percent constituency uh that supported it why can't we do this and the stuff i'm talking about today you know abolishing cars and you know destroying neighborhoods and and then the Pfizer shots that the people vote with their feet despite the pressure. I mean, people bought into it initially, but not anymore. And that's the thing. So let me just give you a smattering of some of the things our North Dakota team is working on and elsewhere. Um, legislation I helped uh, craft. HB 1406, if you want to look this up for a model of what should be in your state. This bill basically is, is designed to hold the health department of the state accountable for vaccine death and injury. Number one, requires the health department to study anyone who died within 30 days of taking the shots as part of a report to quantify the people who died of the shots. And number two, if the department advertises, markets, or promotes either an mRNA shot or a COVID shot, so even the non-mRNA COVID shots, but any other mRNA shot, it shall cover the costs of treatment 
and diagnostics for any individual who suffers any physical injury due to receiving the vaccine. Okay, I mean, that's that's a simple concept, right? You want to make a product available, so it's available. But if the department is going to put its thumb on that scale, you can't have it both ways. Then they also have, they, they can't just do a drive-by and then not be there for the people who are injured by it. And then finally, no government entity may require a shot if the manufacturer has not accepted liability. Done. Something that, how could anyone oppose that? HB 1406. And then there's basically two parallel bills, HB 1502 and HB 1200, that deal with mandates in hospitals and higher education. Because again, in most of the red states, you can't go to a hospital or work in a hospital without a mask or, or a shot. You can't, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the states, you can't attend the state universities to this day. Indiana U. A lot of these universities, and you can't go to medical school, nursing school. So HB 1502, all death certificates should record COVID deaths by VAC status. Also, they must record any vaccine death. So we start quantifying that. And also, no medical facility can mandate or even promote upon the employees either a COVID shot or any experimental shot. And the way we define an experimental shot basically is the shot, in order to not be experimental, the shot had to have been around for at least a year after a placebo-controlled clinical trial. The Department of Health and Human Services has posted on the department's website the injuries or diseases caused by the vaccine and the rate at which the injury or disease occurs from the vaccine. Three, The Department of Health and Human Services has determined the risk of permanent disability or death from the vaccine has been proven to be less than the risk caused by the infection. So they have to show their work, and we could then fight that. And four, the vaccine's manufacturer has liability, including for design defect claims for any death or injury caused by the vaccine. So essentially, it would ban all hospitals from ever banning, from ever, um, mandating or even promoting a shot like this. And again, this is the Nuremberg Code. I'm not saying you can't have it available. I'm saying you cannot promote it. Something that is experimental where there's no liability taken upon it. And then also including that bill is a hospital cannot deny treatment based on COVID vac status. We need to get that into law. HB 1200. Pretty much a parallel thing for higher education. No state-funded college can promote either a COVID shot or experimental shot on students as a precondition for attending in-person classes. An experimental shot is defined by the same uh, uh, parameters as the previous bill. And the state's VAX requirements for public and private daycare and K-12 education cannot include either COVID shots or experimental shots with, again, the same definitions. We also have North Dakota SB 2384, which bans all mRNA shots. And again, we could, you know, negotiate that if you want to do it only for a few years. If you want to uh, say, okay, we won't ban their availability, but we're going to ban the State Department of Health from recommending them and getting involved in them. 
We have, as we mentioned before, Idaho Senate Bill 1018 requires vaccine matter and material labeling to ensure that we know if they're putting vaccines and which type in our food, like, like you know, the cattle supply, beef and chicken. Um, Florida HB 305 adds vaccination status to anti-discrimination law. I mean, this is the most discriminated against, the most senseless discrimination. So if we're going to have discrimination law, that should be included in it. And then again, I, I have not succeeded. And it shocks me. It shocks me after everything we've gone through that we haven't had a constitutional amendment. What, 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 what's it going to take? And again, I'm not in favor of putting a ban on any private mandates, like purely private, in the Constitution. I, I do believe it needs to be done in statute, um, but at least public accommodation. So again, I'm just going to read to you two different versions um, one's from me, one's from Aaron Siri, and either one's fine. One is the right of a person to refuse any medical procedure, treatment, injection, device, vaccine, or prophylactic shall not be questioned or interfered with in any manner. Equality of rights under the law or in the realm of public accommodation shall not be denied or abridged to any person in this state or commonwealth, if that's what it's called, because of the exercise of the right under the section. Or the other version is no law may require or coerce or penalize in any manner, or deprive any benefit for refusing to take, be administered, or otherwise receive, or disclose whether a person took, was administered, or otherwise received any medical product, including any medical device, drug, or biologic. So this is just a smattering of some of the ideas we have here. Um, you know, we also need, you know, the doctor-patient autonomy bills, like, for example, no doctor shall be penalized with loss of licensure or board certification on account of speaking out against the shots or masks. Um, I know Florida plans on doing that, um, but we don't really have that anywhere yet um, except for Tennessee, to my knowledge. No doctor can be punished for using off-label FDA-approved drugs. All pharmacists must fill those prescriptions absent a religious conscience concern. And there should be a cause of action in court for patients to sue pharmacies that block valid prescriptions. Any barriers to doctors themselves dispensing drugs they prescribe should be lifted. Um, there are states that allow under certain parameters for doctors to, to dispense, not just prescribe, but actually give out the drugs. Um, but in general, it is limited. It needs to be expanded. And finally, the complaint process. I know Bob Hall in Texas has some bills on this. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can look it up. The complaint process against doctors with the state's medical board must be overhauled. Um, complaints should only be accepted from patients um, or in a case of a deceased, a relative alleging injury, surviving family, again, alleging an injury, um, or from medical professionals with direct contact who allege patient harm, all complaints in absence of patient harm must be ignored. Um, and we got to stop this anonymous stuff. Again, the state's immunization register, we cannot have that information. There is no reason to have that information. The immunization register needs to be abolished at a minimum. Um, you know, states need to follow what New Hampshire had for a while where you had to opt in. So if you go to a pharmacy to get a shot, 
he has to give you a piece of paper and say, do you consent to being placed in a registry? I mean, these are no-brainers. No-brainers. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Obviously, the patient bill of rights we need in hospitals and senior care facilities to allow one surrogate present in the hospital or visitor anytime, permit patients to access FDA-approved drugs off-label prescribed by a doctor at their own expense. So, you know, you have to allow doctors to do, but also, let's say you're stuck in a hospital. That was the whole problem we had for two years. So then they they can, a hospital cannot block the patient and the family from bringing in a doctor with their own expense, their own liability to do that. Accord every patient the right to refuse any hospital prescribed treatment or the right to refuse to remain in the facility um, if they have the mental capacity to leave. So that's the medical kidnapping. There must be a cause of action created to sue any hospital for civil charges and possibly for the district attorney to bring criminal charges against hospitals that deny these rights. Um, and all hospitals violating these rights should be on the hook for losing their state tax-exempt status. What about remdesivir? Can we get a ban on that? Like, <laughs> I mean, it just, it's so bizarre that we have to start from the beginning. If you had a movement building the case legislatively for this over a while, we would have dealt with this. And then again, there's this medical kidnapping with Child Protective Services. Uh, Tammy Nichols has a great bill House Bill 821, but that was last session. I don't know what it is this session. Um, and I could go on and on. I could go on and on. Um, we need to criminalize gain-of-function research in any state facility. So Pfizer, Moderna, or you know, state university research institutions cannot engage in any research on state territory that is designed to make a pathogen more transmissible or more pathogenic. Because I think some might say, well, we don't really have institutions in the state doing that. Well, I don't know. That could be. It's not, I mean, it's probably not in all states, but a lot of a lot, a lot of them probably do, you know, with that Project Veritas revelation of what Pfizer's doing. Well, where are they doing this stuff? Oh, we ban gain of function. Well, clearly we haven't. And we need to have a liberal private cause of action for citizens to sue for alleged violations. I mean, folks, this is everything. I just want to end off, you know, thinking of of what we've learned of our medical system. How for years and Aaron Siri, that you know, when Aaron Siri came on the show at the beginning of the week on Monday, it was very uncomfortable because he really picked at a scab. And his point was like, you think COVID's such a big deal? He's like, that's mainly because it happened all at w- in one shot. But how much of this was gradually happening for so many years? Meaning, when I, when I, what I mean by this is the paradigm of creating an illness, then creating a therapeutic that's deadly and then exacerbates the problem to create a vicious circuitous cycle of illness and greed and therapeutics, all the while boxing out what we should be doing. I mean, is there a greater pro-life issue than this? So, you know, in that context, you think about cancer. I know a lot of people going through this now. I mean, oncology, radiology is just jammed up. 
Some of this is because I think things pharma and big food and big whatever has been doing for a while um, has definitely caused cancer to rise even before the COVID shots, and the COVID shots are certainly doing it as well in a very specific timetable, specific way. But, you know, I have a family member that was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it was, thank God, caught very early. So it was small. They took it out, you know, didn't have to do a full uh, a mastectomy or something, just a lumpectomy to take it out. And uh, all right, that's great. Done. Um, no signs that it spread to the lymph nodes. No signs that it's anywhere. And prima facie, it's fine. And, you know, even with such a low level, thank God, a really great prognosis, surgery done, they want to do radiation they want to do chemo yeah it's not as bad chemo as this other stuff they do with you know heavy duty cancer and monoclonal antibody treatments and this treatment and that treatment your hair is going to fall out you have to go through these diagnostics your bone marrow will be depleted your immune system is going to be killed your heart you have to have established baselines it's funny they didn't do that before the covid shots but here establish all sorts of markers and baselines for the heart and i'm thinking like wait a minute even their own data. And because, you know, now I'm plugged into this. So it's basically like, okay, you, you get the breast cancer surgery, you have 85% survival within 10 years, something like that. And they have this whole system. It's like a computer program. They plug it in. Um, and you add like, it, it's, you add two more points for each thing. It's like, it's so perfect. But, you know, let, let, let's just work with their system. And again, none of this is independently verified. Now we all know all these studies and data comes from the manufacturer. Okay, fine. And, but even their own data, it's like, okay, so you're telling me you have a 10% chance of heart failure. You have a 10% chance of anaphylaxis. You have a 10% chance of this. You know, you destroy your immune system. But even according to their own numbers, it adds a few more points against the cancer. It's like, I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that a prima facie negative cost-benefit analysis? I mean, prima facie, the cancer is not even there, and they want to do this. And just to zoom out broadly, this is what we see with COVID, but this is what they do. If it's something that the cool kids put out, and it has the medical, political, financial support behind it, it's like, boom, it's all good. It's all good. Preemptively you know, downplay the the problems with it, just do it. And if it's not the cool kids, you could have someone like, you know, with their last dying breath and they won't do the right to try. Something that often won't even cause you problems. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work against what you're trying to do. But, you know, that, in other words, everything we experienced through COVID, I don't, it really wasn't an anomaly. It was an anomaly in the sense that it was so jarring how many people it killed at once and that you couldn't miss it, although it seems like a lot of people and most Republican politicians did miss it and refused to open their hearts, minds, and eyes to what we're seeing. But this is everything. When you talk about life, liberty, property, economy, the healthcare sector is everything. It's life and liberty for sure. It's economy. It's, it's one-fifth of our economy. And property. I mean, it, property in the sense that it's really the most expensive thing. But for what? And it's very confusing because mixed in are all different segments of it that legitimately we've made advances. I think surgery 
surgical technology for sure. And that's what really clouds a lot of the cancer diagnoses that they could, you know, sound like, oh, we've made advances against it. But, it, it, you know, it's coming from very specific things, maybe some early detection, some uh, and, and obviously the surgery. When you talk about the treatment regimens, I don't know. I mean, maybe some of the cancers, but th th there's a lot going on there. I mean, I don't have time to get into this, but Robert Malone um, was sending this around there's a paper out on ivermectin against prostate cancer. Um, I'll see if I could dig that up here as, as I'm talking. But, you know, where is the movement? You know, kudos to those who worked this issue long before COVID, before I was turned on to it. But um, how could people not wake up now? Oh, yeah, it was James Lyons Weiler, Popular Rationalism. Uh, Malone tweeted it out, but, but it was from Weiler, Dr. Weiler. Terrific, terrific piece there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you could go read it there. But, again, even if there would be 5% legitimacy to this, we know it's safe. Why wouldn't you try it? They're willing to destroy your body, and it maximizes everything. Like all these patients, these cancer patients who don't even have cancer, but they say they're doing it preventatively. So you get to the oncologist cashes in, the radiologist cashes in, and then all the labs cash in, and you have to do everything. It's a beautiful system they created for themselves. So again, like the pro-life movement needs to move beyond just the abortion issue. What about the living? What about the already born? You gotta, you gotta expand it. It's from con conception to natural death. But what are all the unnatural ways they're killing us? These are the sorts of issues we need to bring up to governors, to attorneys general, to legislatures, oversight hearings in in Congress. And and you know, one of the things we need is, and I've been pushing this even to those that don't want legislatures to be more full time, and I don't agree with those arguments generally. But at least have oversight, if not legislative sessions, but oversight. Why should state governments be funneling all this money and regulation to the medical system, the university systems that control the state medical system, which are often the largest employers in the state, and so much hinges upon it, so much life, liberty, property, economy hinges upon that state medical system, and there's no legislative oversight the entire year. Again, I know I threw a lot of information at you, but again, that's what it is. That's what we seek to do. As Abigail Adams said, learning is not attained by chance. It must be sought off with ardor and intended to with diligence. And that's a, what, what you don't know. I was going to say what you don't know can't kill you, but what you, what you don't know indeed does kill you. Knowledge and truth are the ultimate power. That's what we need to do to combat this low-information conservative epidemic that's making even our own areas almost as bad as the left's areas. Let me know your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns. Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com is the email. At rmconservative is the Twitter. Um, I really would appreciate it. It really does help. If you guys want to know how you could help, you how you could vote, well, sign up for conaction.network, one of our state teams. If you're a team lead, leader, email me. If you want to be a team leader, 
And if you could give us a five-star rating on iTunes and leave a comment, it doesn't have to be long, but it helps with the algorithms to get us ahead of the low-info, empty-calorie shows. We're going to fill you with the right sort of animal protein intellect, not the eat the bugs equivalent of intellect, what you hear from Con Inc. every day. Folks, till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. <laughs>